It is good to be in L.A. So you can get your face in the camera. You know, I figured if I was going to see something 20 or 25 times, I ought to know more about it. You're the best son money can buy. It's a monkey. Well, sure it's a monkey. But aside from that, it's a vivid, wonderful film. Entertainment is part of what makes us exceptional. I'm not, I'm not criticizing Hollywood. Without Derek Zoolander, male modeling wouldn't be what it is today. I, I mean, I have to say, when I, when I heard that like people actually watch this show, I was, I was actually pretty surprised. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the fourth episode of Watching Mates. I'm this week's host, Mike Levito, and I'm joined, as always, by Lars Emerson. Hey, everyone. Good to be back. Yeah, so I think you should probably know the drill right now. This is our new-ish, though soon becoming not new podcast, in which we explore trends in film and cinema under each post-war president. As we progress from episode to episode, Truman to Eisenhower, Eisenhower to Kennedy, and so on, Lars and I each choose a film to capture the zeitgeist of that administration on the silver screen. In this episode, we'll be talking about America's 36th president, Lyndon Baines Johnson. A born and bred Texas boy, Johnson went from being a school teacher who narrowly won election to the House of Representatives to Senate Majority Leader in little over 10 years' time. While in Congress, he became known for his domineering, almost bullying personality and aggressive negotiating strategy nicknamed the Johnson Treatment. He was chosen as John F. Kennedy's running mate in the 1960 election to represent the old-school Southern establishment wing of the party, though he himself was actually fairly progressive politically. Johnson ascended to the presidency after Kennedy was assassinated in 1963 and set off to make himself the next FDR. He'd eventually win the presidency in his own right by shellacking Barry Goldwater in 1964 and introduced the Great Society and War on Poverty agendas which saw the creation of programs like Medicare, Medicaid, and the founding of the public broadcasting system. He was also a vocal advocate for civil rights and signed the two Civil Rights Acts and the Voting Rights Act, as well as the Immigration and Nationality Act. Johnson also rather infamously oversaw the escalation of the Vietnam War. Just just a small small mark on his record. Um, this would, of course, become the big bugaboo of his tenure and legacy, as the war's unpopularity and high death toll sparked nationwide protests and helped give birth to the counterculture, while crime began to rise and rise became more common towards the end of the 1960s. After some disappointing early results in the 1968 primary, Johnson shocked the world by announcing that he would not seek re-election to the presidency and instead retire to his Texas ranch after his term ended. He would die only four years after leaving office. Smoked himself to death. <laughs> yes. Uh, what What do you think of Johnson's legacy and the man himself, Lars? Well, it's a legacy that we're very much facing, I think, in the last couple years, as we're kind of in this era of uh, modern civil rights, I would say, uh, where we're, we're looking at, you know, we have civil rights laws, uh, though the Supreme Court has, you know, <laughs> struck out a couple parts of them recently. We're trying to unpack how we can be more equitable in our application of the law and how we treat people. So I think Johnson's legacy has kind of come to a head in that regard. I think it's also come to the head in that President Joe Biden has very much billed himself as like finishing this trend line that goes from Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal to Johnson's great society to like ending that kind of era with kind of what Biden sees as necessary policies, both domestically and internationally. Now, like you said, uh, internationally, Johnson's reputation is not stellar. <laughs> it's pretty it's pretty dark. But I think to take the FDR parallel and you and I were kind of talking about this a couple of weeks ago, it's Johnson is so weird in that he's very distinctly like a domestic president and very, very important there, but he's also one of our most important foreign policy presidents. Mm -hmm. And it feels like the only other 
match to that is FDR. I can't think of anyone who was just so domestic focused and so foreign focused. Yeah. But exactly. FDR at least had, you know, 12 years to do it. Yes. And Johnson has uh, six. Yeah. And World War II is a bit more popular than the Vietnam War. Certainly. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's funny, right? Because from like a domestic perspective, like this is the peak of American liberalism. I think in yeah. the presidency, right? From like a, a fiscal perspective, like I don't, like he was the most progressive liberal, whatever you want to call it, president since FDR and perhaps ever, basically, right? Since then, I think Biden's trying to change that. I think Biden's trying to actually be very progressive socially and fiscally. So yeah, we'll we'll see. But yeah, like I said, Vietnam, it's just like an amazing, it's an amazing contradiction. It's, it's kind of hard to wrap your head around a little bit. And it's funny, like over the summer, I read For the Storm by Rick Perlstein, which is about Barry Goldwater, who, like I said, Johnson destroyed in the 1964 election. And we'll talk a bit more about that when we talk about one of these movies. But like the way America treated Johnson when he was running for president is like almost messianic because they were like, please save us from this lunatic Barry Goldwater. And it like, it actually reminded me a lot of like the way people were thinking about Joe Biden. Like, cause it's like, like Lyndon B. Johnson, he was kind of, it was like, you know, I I don't think I would ever want to know Lyndon B. Johnson or certainly would not want to work for him. Yeah. But he turned himself into this liberal hero. And I feel like, I think my assumption is Biden is probably a nicer man than Lyndon B. Johnson. Yeah. But I think it's the same deal where it's like Biden He's got some questionable moments in his past, but I think has also transformed himself into this, or at least trying to transform himself into a progressive hero. So, yeah. Yes. I think there is actually a lot to the Biden-Johnson parallel for our modern day listeners. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, they were both like creatures of the Senate for, you know, years, yeah. um, who then ascended to the, the presidency. Yeah, exactly. Okay, well, let's get to the meat of this thing. The rules of our podcast dictate that Lars and I each had to choose a film that came out within... The, the president's administration, give or take a year. So in Johnson's case, we'll say that's like 1963 to 1969. Yeah. So why don't why don't we go with your movie first, Lars? What did you pick? Yeah. So I went with the 1967 film Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, directed by Stanley Kramer uh, and starring Spencer Tracy, Sidney Poitier, Catherine Hepburn, Catherine Houghton. It is a story about a young woman who comes home with her fiance uh, to meet her liberal, like educated parents, and they're going to have a dinner party. But get this, her fiance is black. And this is a big, you know, a big deal for these these people who thought of themselves as very progressive. They now have to confront the reality of their own inherent racism. And then, you know, there's kind of a second and then there's kind of a third. Guess who else is coming to dinner? (laughs) (laughs) um in the movie which i mean just i'll tell you now just because it'll make this easier it's like then it turns out that sydney potier's character whose name is john prentice his parents then get invited to dinner (laughs) yeah or they kind of they kind they invite themselves over and and that's actually what the the phrase guess who's coming to dinner refers to like that's when Catherine hepburn says it yeah in reference to his parents yeah, and then there is one other dinner guest, uh, a Catholic named Michael. So, <laughs> yes, I did get uh, invited to their dinner. Yes, did you appreciate <laughs> the invite, Mike? <laughs> so that's the gist, Michael. What did you think of the movie? I enjoyed this movie. I, I I did enjoy this movie more than I think I was expecting to. You know, clearly very dated in a lot of ways. But I do think that, well, first of all, the, the time crunch in this movie stressed me the hell out. Like, yes. the fact that, like, what happens is, is Catherine Hutton, who, by the way, is Catherine Hepburn's niece, meets Sidney Poitier in Hawaii 
They know each other for like 10 days. They get engaged. That, then... that bothered me. so. The 10 days bothered me so much. <laughs> Because it's like yes. you're, you're ruining your own argument. It's like, I am now against this marriage, not for racial reasons, but because <laughs> you guys are doing something pretty stupid here. Yeah. And they fly, they surprise fly to San Francisco to see her parents. And the thing is, they, they tell them they're, they're getting engaged. And they're like, you have to approve of this because John is flying to New York tonight so he can then catch a flight to Geneva. And then in a few days, Joanna... Is gonna is gonna fly Geneva and marry him, and you guys. So so you have to figure this out tonight, and then later on, his parents are like, "Ah, oh, we're in L.A. We'll just take the forty minute flight up the up the state right. and right. visit them." And they're like, "Okay, we'll pick you up at like six thirty, but let's get a drink with with Joanna's best friend first. I don't even really know what the point of that scene was when they get a drink with her friend. Anyway, there's a couple <laughs> weird asides in this movie the, that I do not the, need. The like delivery boy. Yes. With the where's the music coming from? And he like well, runs up to the house. And the music that's playing too. So as we can kind of start getting into like sort of like why why you pick this movie, but like what there's another book I'm going to reference to make myself sound cultured called Pictures at a Revolution, which is by Mark Harris, and it's about the 1967 Academy Awards, which was this sort of like real watershed moment at the awards where you had sort of like the new Hollywood start to break in, Bonnie and Clyde and The Graduate being nominated for Best Picture. And then you had two, like, more traditional movies that still dealt with, like, you know, controversial subjects, which was Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and In the Heat of the Night. And then you had one just absolute dinosaur of a movie that no one cared about and was just completely lost to time, Dr. Doolittle. So basically he talks about how Stanley Kramer was, like, you know, like, very convinced that this movie was, like, you know, very thought-provoking and... and and important and stuff and he he toured it like on college campuses and like the students were just like yeah like we get it like this is not like groundbreaking to us like this is not you're not doing anything you know really that innovative here this is like not novel to us this is like you know clearly packaged in a way that's like not meant to appeal to us and i feel like the the whole like delivery boy kind of encapsulates that where the music he's listening to is this like beach movie like horn music but with these like psychedelic sitars within it too and he's just, like, combining, like, Revolver-era Beatles to, like, a song together, which never... Ha- like, it just, like... This guy clearly didn't understand, like, what youth culture was like at the time. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I did enjoy this movie. You know, this was Spencer Tracy's last movie. And he was acting alongside his longtime co-star and wife, Catherine Hepburn. And, like, there's clearly, like, a lot of emotion coming off of that, even though, you know, it is a little outdated at points. But it's, like, well-acted. I think it's well... It's well done. Like the emotions actually there. I, I think it's I think it's pretty good. Yeah, I I, I agree. I, I was surprised how well it um captured me for a you know, a movie basically set in one house about a subject that, you know, clearly we have not left behind, but like we basically on paper resolved. Yeah. when this movie was made, as they actually mentioned in the movie, interracial marriage was still illegal in seventeen states. And then actually it wasn't until days after they were done filming that Loving versus Virginia, which outlawed those kinds of bans was decided at the Supreme Court. Yeah. Where, where do you want to where do you want to start with this one? So I think it kind of ties to what I was saying about Stanley Kramer, where this movie is, yes, has sort of like progressive and liberal ideals behind it. Right. But it is also packaged in such a way as to appeal to like old people, basically. Right. Well, absolutely. I, it reminds me, Michael and I used to run with a a crowd that of which there were some very, very progressive members. And I remember that they would call out uh, the Human Rights Campaign, which mm-hmm. is an organization that lobbies in favor of, you know, like gay marriage and like gay rights. 
etc. And they would say, well, they're not like going far enough, yada, yada, yada. A good friend of Michael and I who worked for the human rights campaign um, was like making the points like, well, yeah, that's because their point is to like make gays like acceptable to grandma. Mm -hmm. They're not there to convince, you know, the the liberal like radicals about (laughs) about it. Mm -hmm. They're there to make sure like the old white people like feel like safe with a gay person. Right, yeah. And yeah. I think in a lot of ways, that was kind of like Johnson's goal, too. Not yeah. in regards to homosexuality, but in regards to, you know, racial equality, right? He was able to take a very pro-civil rights message and package it in such a way that it appealed to, I mean, an incredible swath of the country, if you just look at the 1964 election map, right? And I I, I think that that can't be discounted. But, you know, I also think this this film reflects those limitations in a way as well, right? Like, you look at John Prentice and Joanna Drayton, the two main characters, they are very clean-cut. They are very preppy, right? Oh, they're perfect, uh, right? Yeah. Well, he, yeah. he certainly is. Mm-hmm. He's like yeah, he's, he's like, like a this, doctor. He's a doctor. He's like assistant director of the WHO or whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's trying to appeal to, like, that crowd in that sense, right? Spencer Tracy's character literally has a picture of Franklin Delano Roosevelt framed on his desk. Yeah. And, well, I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. Because <laughs> I wrote that they show it many, many times. And we do sort of, when we were introducing the movie, we talk about how they are. They both identify as like liberal, and they're mm. city-dwelling liberals, well-educated academic white folks. I mean, he runs the town's newspaper, right? Isn't that his backstory? Yeah, yeah. These aren't like you know your backwoods rural voters. Mm. <laughs> they're not Goldwater voters. Yeah, yeah. I appreciated that. It's it's mm. good that the movie didn't make them just like racist on the surface. Yeah. It is actually a movie about inherent racism. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's kind of like the it's the happy flip side to Get Out, right? It you know, it is a lot like if, Get Out. If yeah. the family in Get Out were all like Trump supporters, there wouldn't be much of a point to it. But the fact that Bradley Whitford would have voted for Obama if he could <laughs> for a third time, you know that that's what that's what makes it have a point. Well, oh, and I like the dad, like when he he's like first kind of meeting Sidney Poitier and he like pulls him aside and they're talking and he's like, you know, I'm not a racist. It's like, in fact, I'm watching the TV and I think the colored kids, they dance way better than the white kids or whatever. That reminded me a lot of get out reminds me a lot of this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Which I would assume is intentional on Jordan Peele's part. But what I was going to say is that I actually think in in a way that, that kind of makes this movie forward. I'm not quite forward thinking, but I think, Maybe this movie doesn't get enough credit for that, right? Because I'm thinking now, like, the, the movie I've already picked for our Nixon episode, right? It's also kind of about a clash between youths and, and like, the old world America. And it's not quite as... It, it, it It's like the villains in that movie are very much, like, Goldwater slash Nixon voters, right? Mm. They are, like, resentful Southerners. And also, like, the main characters are, like, more straight-up hippies. I, but I don't know well, what it is, but I'm starting to get an idea. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think about... So so there is another character in this movie who's not really a main character, and her name is Tilly. And she is the mm-hmm. African-American house she's, servant. She's a, she's she, a maid slash... Yeah. yeah. She, she does, like, the cooking and the cleaning. And she is not a fan of Sidney Poitier at all. And she, she says... You know, she finds out that they're going to get married and she's like, well, civil rights is one thing, but this this is something else. <laughs> yeah. Which is an interesting, uh, interesting foil. Yeah, I, I think that on a level it's actually meant to be played for like comedy. Like it's supposed to be ironic or it's like, ah, you thought all the white people would be the most racist. But what about her? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, 
and so I, I and I don't think it's really effective in that regard. But like I'm remembering this this interview I saw a long time ago of Clarence Thomas, and he talks about growing up. I believe he grew up in the South, and he talks about how like at some point it was either his father's grandfather, like when Clarence Thomas reached a certain age, and they were like, you have to learn that like you can't look a white woman in the eye. And I think in mm. a way, she's the Tilly character is kind of meant to represent that mentality, right? This idea where it's like, look, it is in your best interest as a black person to not get involved in this because it can only lead to ruin for you, right? I think, I think, and and she's something I'm sure she's probably experienced like through her own lived experience. Right. Um, so I, I think that's what that's trying to do. I don't know if necessarily this is effectively, but I think that's kind of the point. And you get that a little bit, too, with John's father. He's not quite as explicit about that. He's more so just like, you know, hey, this is kind of a crazy idea and you're going to have a lot of problems and, and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of I, I thought the Tilly stuff kind of fell a little flat for me. Yeah, I wish they yeah. would have either done something a little deeper or not done it at all. Mm hmm. Because I think you could have done a, you know, Johnson in the civil rights era very much is based off of, you know, Dr. King's kind of agenda. It's, it's you don't want them to be afraid of you. Mm -hmm. Unlike Malcolm X, right? Right. right. <laughs> it was like, well, you know, fuck them. <laughs> Like, we don't know them that. We don't know them anything. In fact, they should be, like, begging for our forgiveness, which I think is a message that actually uh, is a little more popular today. Um, <laughs> it's it's uh, interesting, too, because, like, Tilly does explicitly reference, like, the Black Power movement in, like, the scene where she confronts John, which, again, is, like, kind of, like, meant, I think, is trying to be played for comedy when he's, like, changing. It takes, like, this very weird camera angle to her. Like, it gets very up close in their faces and is kind and of... And the Dutch skewed. angle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was like, oh, man, this is something. But yeah, and she, 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 she mentions like black power when she's like accusing John Prentice and his ilk of being like part of the black power movement and making it harder for African-Americans in general. Which um, makes no sense because he's no, you know, he's clearly the the more Dr. King like is he, he just wants yes. to be treated like anyone, anyone else. Yeah, there is. So when you do watch it as a modern viewer, there are obviously some things that are like a little more problematic. Like, I think the whole it's like the parents, they have this whole conversation. It's like, well, how could our daughter do this? And it's like, well, because we raised her this way. And they say, like, well, it's not that color doesn't matter to her. It's that she doesn't even seem to know there's a color difference or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, that's a that's a very, you know, 1990s way of looking at race yeah, in America. Like, it, it color blindness, basically. Yeah. Which I think this is like a, a, a pro-color blindness movie in a lot of ways. Yes. Um, the last thing I kind of thought about this movie is it's also kind of a movie about feminism. You, you get mm. this movie as kind of a clash between new versus old, white versus black, and like feminism versus traditionalism. And that's why you see – so Catherine Hepburn, you know, she – warms up to this idea a lot faster than the dad does. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, she's, she's sold pretty early on. Mm -hmm. And it's the same uh, with Sidney Poitier's parents, actually, as well. Is mm -hmm. His father is not doesn't want his son to marry into a white family, but the wives are the ones kind of working behind the scenes. Yeah. And this is also an era in which I think the feminist movement is overshadowed by the civil rights movement, but mm -hmm. it's also an era where you have a lot of, I mean, civil rights means civil rights for everyone, right? You have a lot of that going on. And yeah. you see women taking up roles that they would not have. Yeah, it's definitely, yes, I would agree. There, There's that undercurrent as well. But at the same time, it's like, you know, the argument that, like, Catherine Hepburn and B. Richards, who plays John Burns' mother, make is basically just like, oh, these two old men forgot what it is like to be in love. Right. Yeah. Right. Like that's their argument. It's not that like, oh, these people have like autonomy and should be able to do what they want. It's like right. there, there's an emotional appeal there. 
to be a little fair, this also bugged me. The daughter is 23, and, and Stephen Poitier's character is 37. Yes. Yeah. I don't like. Why did they have to throw that in? Why are they making this more difficult for me? <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I and I think in a way it's. I think that's them. I was gonna say gilding the lily, but it's not gilding the lily, right? Like that's them trying to make him more perfect, right? It's like they can't just have him be <laughs> like. No, but like I think the point is that like this is a guy who is smart. He's no dope. He's he's thought about this. He's accomplished. You know, he's the kind of guy you'd want your daughter to marry. And I guess it'd be harder if they were like, oh, here's also this like guy. Here's someone who's also just fresh out of college, which would probably be more interesting and arguably like more realistic, right? Like, yeah. I I, I want to see the version of this movie that it takes place a few years later, and it's these well-meaning Roosevelt liberals send their daughter to, like, Berkeley, and she becomes, like, a member of the free speech movement, right? Yeah. Like, that, I think, would be, like, just, like, a very interesting clash as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think to kind of cap this film off, you, you said it is, like, a little prescient, even though it's very, like, yeah, like you said, it's, it's a pro-color blindness, but it is kind of prescient about the difficulties that that will happen. And it's like it's like we keep saying, right? He's he does everything right. He's this doctor. He's like he works for the WHO. Um, he happens to be like one of the most handsome men in the history of the planet. Like, <laughs> he's he's freaking Sidney Poitier, and I and, and like and it still just barely works, right? Right. Is it, everything is perfect, and everything has to be perfect for it to cut the right way. Mm-hmm. And that's if you have to be perfect. <laughs> That's not like a good standard. Yeah. So I think it is. You look at it now and it's like, oh, well, of course there was going to continue to be racism. Um, yeah. And it's like I mean, you look at the way the presidential election skewed, right? 1964, Johnson wins in the landslide. We get deeper and he passes a few civil rights bills, Voting Rights Act. But also like, you know, African-American activists become more active. There are some riots. The Black Panther Party becomes a thing. And all of a sudden, all these people who voted for Johnson are like, you know what? I think I like this Nixon guy more. Right. They, they realize that their tolerance only went so far. And I think, yeah, you're right. It is kind of prescient in that regard. Of, like, the backlash, basically. Yeah. <laughs> the last thing. Do you remember at the end of the movie when, like, the dad's about to announce his major decision and he comes out of the house and everyone's sitting on the porch? Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> he then spends five minutes recapping literally the entire yes. movie. <laughs> it's so funny. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he like basically tells the whole movie scene by scene. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That yes, I that that was not particularly necessary. No, because it's not a long movie. Not the strongest. No, it isn't. Anyways, I was surprised this movie wasn't originally a play. It feels it could like be. Play. It could definitely be a play. It all takes place in like one place. <laughs> yeah. So that's guess who's coming to dinner. Yeah. All right. I went with another best picture nominee, but three years earlier, Doctor Strangelove, or how I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, directed by another Stanley, Stanley Kubrick, written by Stanley Kubrick, Terry Southern, Peter George, based on Peter George's novel Red Alert, and starring Peter Sellers, George C. Scott, Sterling Hayden, Keenan Wynn, Slim Pickens, and Tracy Reed. Dr. Strangelove is the story of basically this Cold War disaster where a renegade Air Force general named Jack Ripper, very subtly named <laughs> Jack Ripper. A lot of fun names in this movie. Yeah, basically gives false orders saying that like a Soviet attack is imminent and, and commands all of the B-52 squadrons on standby to drop their nuclear payloads on their targets in the Soviet Union. And chaos ensues. There is a meeting 
in the war room in the Pentagon of the president and all of his advisors trying to figure out how to avoid the impending nuclear apocalypse. All the while, the military basically tries to recapture the base that Ripper is in charge of so that he can give like the stand down order to the bombers. And it is a comedy, (laughs) ostensibly. Lawrence, what do you think about this movie? Yeah, so I'd seen this movie a couple times before, and so I gave you a lot of grief when you picked this movie to begin with, Mike. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Um, and and I, I gave you grief for, I think, some pretty justified reasons. Is It's a movie that comes out in 64, which mm-hmm. is you know the, basically Johnson's first year in office. So it was clearly produced in the Kennedy era. It, it's, it's a Cold War movie, but Johnson, to me, doesn't feel like a Cold War president. And I think it makes a lot more sense for like a Kennedy or a Truman or an Eisenhower or a Nixon. And But like Johnson is very much at the bottom of that curve. Mm-hmm. But then, then I, I backed down and I was like, well, Johnson's also an important foreign policy president. So maybe we should watch this. And then I watched it, and I gotta say, Mike, I don't love this movie for Johnson. (laughs) I think it tries to be funny to its detriment, Mm -hmm. and I think it loses reality when it tries to do that. Yeah, that's a good... I I actually think that's a good way to put it. (laughs) Yeah, this was the first time I've ever seen this movie, and the humor did not really, like, work for me. No. Um, The the only, like, funny part is, like, you can't fight in here, this is the war room. Yeah. The part that I thought was the best is when Peter Sellers is playing the president and he's on the phone. Talk, he was talking like the Soviet premiere and stuff. Can you like, turn the that, music down? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, that, that, those are the parts that I like the best. And even though I didn't find George C. Scott funny, I said my Letterboxd review, just like his facial expressions, very Tim Robinson-esque I found. Yeah. So the reason I picked this movie is because, I'm going to keep reference this book again, Rick Perlstein writes a lot about it in Before the Storm and basically talks about how this movie kind of gave words to people's fears about Barry Goldwater and sort of like this burgeoning right-wing movement that they were kind of afraid of. That was also defined by the famed Daisy ad that the Johnson campaign put out. If you've never seen it before, it's this little girl in the field, like plucking petals off of a daisy, counting them down, and then it kind of like pulls out into a countdown of a nuclear bomb and it blows up and it's like, this would be like Goldwater presidency, blah, blah, blah. doesn't literally say that, but it basically says that. Yeah. And so it, it put words to that. But what I also think this movie does is... This is 1964, pretty early in the 60s, and it expresses a sort of skepticism of the military and the government that I think would come to define Johnson's presidency and the rest of basically like 66 to like 81, right? It comes to define the skepticism and the way it sort of tries to lampoon the government and the military, I think, is not something that I think Johnson or a lot of the establishment was prepared for. And this is not maybe as harsh a critique as like the counterculture would, would, would put up, but I think this is kind of like the start of that. And it's like the start of people being like, huh, I don't really know how I feel about the fact that like we have all these planes flying around that has all this power or that we just kind of like pick a dude who's like elected dude who's in charge of all of this. You know, skepticism in that regard. If you read about, like, the, the, the John Birch movement, like, Jack Ripper is, like, straight out of, like, the John Birch movement, right? Or John Birch Society, mm. rather, right? Like, his, like, oh, it's fluoride's a, cl- a communist plot. Right. Like, all, all this, like, paranoia and stuff. And, and I think that, well, I chose this movie because I need a movie. I need a movie that wasn't in the heat of the night, which would have basically just been a guess who's coming down or redux, right? Yeah. And I, that, that, that's why I did it, right? It's like, it encapsulates these people's fears. It shows you why they elected Johnson over Goldwater, one of the many reasons why. And I think it got people asking questions about like, why are these people in charge and why are we letting them do this? And like, do we actually trust them, right? This is no longer the, yes, like, you know, ducking cover cartoons about turtles, you know, um, and bomb drills, right? This is like the, huh, 
Like, have we really thought about this critically? Like, what what's going to happen? Do we really trust these people with such destructive power and to make such life and death decisions? And that, I think, played out towards the end of Johnson's administration. And it was ultimately his undoing. Yeah, I mean, I do think it handles that well. I mean, they, the conflict in the movie is that Washington is effectively, like, cut out from doing anything about this. Yeah. The president of the United States is unable to actually do anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, the president is also one of three roles that Peter Sellers plays in this movie. And he's like the only like, bo- he's like the only boring character in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like intentionally, because everyone else is like high energy. Yeah. Wild. Yeah. He was explicitly based on Adlai Stevenson. I mean, blame Kubrick for picking a guy who had already lost the presidency twice and who right. was like nowhere near relevant at that point. Yeah. The funny thing about Peter Sellers is that apparently, so like you read about the production of this movie and it's kind of weird where it's like, like the book it's based on is like not a comedy right it's actually like a thriller and then kubrick started writing it and he was like huh if i have to like make people believe what's actually happening i have to cut out a lot of stuff so it doesn't seem funny so why don't i just lean into it and make it funny and then also the reason why peter sellers plays three different roles is because the studio was like you can make this movie but you have to cast peter sellers in four different roles because that's the only reason why lolita was any good and hey peter that's sellers a callback was, to the previous episode of watching mates yes uh peter sellers was originally supposed to play the role of kong who is the bomber pilot who famously drops down on the bomb but he, he injured himself so he wasn't able to act within like that set so they got slim pickings instead <laughs> yeah but i i would kind of agree that this is more of like an early cold war movie like maybe a little more kennedy era but if the kennedy assassination is when is it when the bottom fell out if that's when we as a nation no longer felt invincible and vulnerable and all-powerful and eternally optimistic then this is like one of the first turns to doing something with that feeling right yeah and i I do like the character of buck turgidson (laughs) does actually kind of remind me of Johnson in that he's like obsessed with his um, uh, genitals. <laughs> Every character in this movie is. Yeah, but LBJ also is. Oh yeah, that's true. <laughs> I, I just, I, yeah, I wish the comedy would have landed a bit, a bit more for me. I, I, I don't know. I do like what you said about the, this was like an era in which we were starting to doubt our government's military efficacy because, mm-hmm. you know, our U.S. military policy up until this point, no matter how problematic it had been, usually always worked out pretty well for the U.S. It would not. It would start to not so much in this era. More so, I mean, this movie came out in 1964, so it's pretty, like, I don't think it's talking about Vietnam, but it could have been talking about Korea. That was a war that, you know, kind of had to get ended, didn't end so popular. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of comments on just, like, war that are now sort of cliches, but I guess would have been interesting at the time. It's like, well, is it mass murder or is it war? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's <laughs> a great yeah. question. It depends what side you're on, Stanley mm-hmm. Kubrick. <laughs> I don't know. Um, also, just very weird to me that this movie is called Dr. Strangelove, and Dr. Strangelove is not in it for that much. <laughs> I mean, I think there's something there. Dr. Strangelove is like an ex-Nazi. Mm-hmm. who, you know, 20 years after World War II is now, like, in the premier military command of the United States. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe the U.S. became what it fought against. Yeah, well, I, th- I think, yeah, that's that's kind of... Now that we talk about, like, this is definitely more of, like, it's maybe it's even, like, a better Eisenhower movie because it's, like, yeah. very anti-military industrial complex. 
Yeah. And like anti MacArthur, I feel like. Like I feel like you could view Ripper or Turgeson as MacArthur. Oh, Ripper, definitely. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, um and I think the president is most similar to like a Truman. The president in this movie is Merkin Muffley. <laughs> yes. I, he reminded me a lot of Truman. You know, he's not the like stand on the table and like dominate everyone that LBJ was. I stand certain in my initial criticism. Yeah. It, it definitely has its moments. Yeah, but it's, it's honestly not a movie that I really like. I, I expect to watch again, honestly. <laughs> like, I feel like I feel like I got it. I feel like I, I'm good with it now. Yeah, it's weird. I watched it in high school um, and I thought it was cool when I was in high school. It's really I don't know. You know, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that does it for Dr. Strangelove. Lars, what do, what do we think we've learned about the Johnson administration? These films could not be like more different, which yes. I think is a good thing because Johnson, as we mm-hmm. said at the onset, is there's such a total dichotomy in like the two parts of his presidency. I'm going to start with a blanket statement. Okay. I think there was national uncertainty in Johnson's time. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's fair to say. Yeah, that's what I got from these two movies. That's how I can connect them. I also, you see the signs of backlash in both movies. Mm-hmm. That is the other connection I could make. Domestic backlash in, you know, in terms of Johnson's liberal and righteous agenda, or international foreign policy backlash in that I think America reached too far. In the most dramatic instance, America went too far, yeah. and you see the signs of backlash. The problem is. That Dr. Strangelove came out <laughs> before either of these things. So we're going to pretend it still works. It was prescient if we yes. saw all of this happening. Well, and the Vietnam War had started before Johnson. Yeah. Yes. I, yeah, I think I would agree, right? In conclusion, America is a land of contrast. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, it was a real mixed bag. And it's, yeah, just a lot of, un, it, it's the unsettling of America, I guess. I don't know. And the introduction of skepticism, I think, on both sides of the aisle to just like the system in general. And yeah, just like objectively progress was made. Like you cannot argue with that. Yeah. But, you know, once you make that progress, you got to kind of stop resting on your laurels and do some other stuff. And also not just like burn down the entire country of Vietnam, too. I feel like is, is maybe the gist of it. I agree. I wish we had a stronger conclusion. But much like Johnson's legacy, it's mixed. Yeah. If you want a lot more, of good and a lot of bad. You can also just read the thousands of pages Robert Caro written about Johnson. If you want some more of that. <laughs> Boy, do I. <laughs> I don't read yeah. about Democrats. I only read about Republicans. <laughs> Honestly, kind of same. Yeah, they're just so much more interesting. I, I, I kind of agree. <laughs> okay, well, that's that. Thanks for listening, everybody. Hope you liked the episode. I'm Mike Levito. I'm Lars Emerson. You can find me on Letterboxd at Lars Emerson. And you can find me at Letterboxd at Ameramike on Twitter at MLevito. You can find this podcast everywhere else you can find podcasts. Google, Spotify, iTunes, you name it. Tune in next episode when we talk about movies that came out under the also froth presidency of Richard Milhouse Nixon. That will be exciting. We have a big feature on... Nixon and pop culture coming up soon on thepostwriter.com, which is where you can find all of Mike and my writing as well. And uh, in the meantime, bye. <laughs>